session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. Before I get uh, into the book of the week for this past week, uh, the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about next is Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb. Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, a therapist, her therapist, and our lives revealed and a few people had recommended this book to me so i wanted to uh, check it out and so i don't know much about it by notes as the title or subtitle implies a therapist her therapist and our lives revealed and so as a therapist myself who also goes to his own therapy i thought that part was interesting in the title and uh, looking forward to reading that this week all right the book of the week from this past week has a title i can't say all the words of Everything is Effed, a book about hope by Mark Manson. He also wrote uh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a F. So that word um, makes its way in both of those titles, and I can't say that on the air. Um, This book was like that other book, The Subtle Art, very entertaining, and he makes a lot of uh, good points, and he writes in a in a way, it's casual yet serious because he brings up lots of important issues, even philosophical issues in this book. Uh, you read parts related to Nietzsche and Immanuel Kant and Schopenhauer, but also um, almost every page has profanities in them. And uh, he writes in a, a kind of comical way at times, which actually is quite funny. At times, it's a little bit much for me in this book, I felt that it was taking away from rather than making it more entertaining but it is an entertaining book and one that makes you want to keep going and keep reading another um, critique i would say is that at times it's a little bit disjointed or hard to follow a thread throughout the book but he makes a lot of interesting points as he did in the subtle art um, which i thought was quite interesting so even the way he describes hope is a little bit something uh, you can dispute maybe but early in the book he talks about the feeling brain and the thinking brain this is something that comes up on this show often Um, and he talks about the car of consciousness and in a way we think that our thinking brain maybe it's why we think that way is the one that's in control the one that's behind the wheel when really it's the feeling brain that's running the show so to speak and the thinking brain is trying to guide things in a certain way but really the feeling brain has more control or power in the situation Um, he also mentions jonathan Haidt has the example of an elephant and a rider and the rider is the thinking brain and the elephant is the feeling brain and so we often think that we're in control and how we think about things but we're not aware of 
how big a part our feeling brain plays. And that's why I always mention how important it is for us to be in touch with the feelings, be aware of the feelings, um, because they are having a big impact on everything we do, whether we're aware of it or not. So it's better to be aware of it, to understand that better. So people often think that they're not emotional or they don't have feelings, but we always have feelings. We actually have feelings to everything and a person and object we interact with. We have some kind of feeling towards it. We might not be aware of it, um, but that's what we want to try to do. So I, I thought that was a good point he made comparing these two parts of the brain and helping us realize that as much as we think it's about thinking, it's really more about feeling. Um, and we should try to be more aware of that in ourselves and in other people, which is why when we try to convince other people about ideas, we think it's about the thinking part, but really most people get to a lot of their moral and political uh, positions from feeling more than from actually thinking. So if you try to give them facts, we see that usually not much changes. It's usually more of a feeling type of a change. So I thought that was an interesting point he made. Um, one thing he said about hope was that when we hope, it's that we're not accepting how things are now and that that is bad. And I don't necessarily agree with that point. Um, to me, when people ask if we should see the glasses half empty or half full, my response is always both because we can recognize what's there and be grateful for what we have at that moment or point, but also see the potential for more and to grow. So we're not satisfied. So you can accept where you are, but also want better. And that's always, to me, something I notice is a misnomer or a misunderstanding of the word acceptance is oftentimes people think that if you're accepting something, you are resigning and just saying, this is as good as it's going to be. I'm not going to work on anything because I accept it. But you can love and accept something as it is and recognize its potential to grow. Just like you might love and accept your child, whatever age or size he or she is, but it doesn't mean you don't anticipate or don't want them to keep growing. So you don't have to be dissatisfied with today in order to want something to keep on growing or changing or being better. Um, so, but he talks more about why hope can get us into trouble. Um, but he he shares some thinking from Immanuel Kant about uh, what gives the formula of humanity, as he calls it, and that is that act that you use humanity, whether in your own person or in the person of any other, always at the same time as an end, never merely as a means. And so uh, using this formula or this um concept in our lives can be very helpful to recognize how often we are using people as a means rather than an end. We're using one another. We're not seeing them for their own goodness and for who they are or recognizing their humanity. Instead, we're trying to get something out of them or get something from them or use them in some way. And that this is a problem, not something that we should um, do. And it's easier said than done, but it's something we should strive towards. Uh, another point he makes that I really uh, agree with very strongly is that pain is one of the, the titles of a chapter. Pain is the universal constant, but he's talking about how pain is part of life. And we have to accept this. And not only that, we shouldn't look at life or our goal in life as to avoid pain 
which is what many people do or we think we are doing or should do. And he talks about happiness. And I think there's lots of ways to look at this concept of happiness or to define that. But he talks about how a lot of people think of happiness in the sense of pleasure or avoiding pain. And so we try to live our lives in that way, but we live very unsatisfying and unfulfilled lives lives when we do this. If you just try to avoid pain all the time, um, you're not going to get much meaning out of your life or it won't feel very meaningful. And many people do live based on this principle. Okay, if this feels good, I should do it. If it doesn't, I won't. Or if something makes me uncomfortable, I should avoid that. And that is a big problem that we're seeing in today's day and age where even people are avoiding in-person relationships or relating to one another because it can be awkward or uncomfortable, but not recognizing that that is in a way necessary in order to have meaningful relationships. We have to risk that discomfort or not feeling very good at some times. Um, and he uses the concept of anti-fragility from Nassim Taleb, whereas that some systems get stronger when they face adversity. I don't think he used the example to, to talk about this, but the immune system or how we have our immune systems works in a way similarly. If you protect a baby from any type of disease, bacteria, or anything uh, from a young age, or I shouldn't just say disease, but any germs and things that um, could even harm the baby from a young age, this will interfere in the strengthening of the immune system. So actually, what you need to do is to be exposed to some of those things, and that actually will strengthen the immune system rather than make it weaker. And so we as people are similar to that. Um, if we think we should avoid all pain, all discomfort, we actually become weaker, just like the body uses that example, becomes weaker when it's not used. It's when we use it and put it in the right type of pain that actually the body grows. And unfortunately, many parents use this same philosophy when it comes to parenting. I talk about the pain prevention philosophy of parenting, where a lot of times parents think their job is to make sure their child never feels any type of pain or discomfort. So if they don't like something, they shouldn't do it. If they like something, they should do it. If they go to a school and their teacher says something they don't like, we should switch their class or switch their schools, not see what's going on and see if we actually can face that pain and discomfort and help them grow. And so what I say is that when it comes to our kids and also with ourselves, we have to try to differentiate between the pain of damage and the pain of growth. The pain of damage we should avoid and is not good, but pain of growth we should actually uh, embrace and face rather than avoid. Again, the analogy of exercise and the body work very well for this. If you're at the gym, we know the old adage, no pain, no gain. There is some truth to that, or actually there is complete truth to that. If you want to build muscle, there has to be some pain and some tearing of the muscle that then repairs and becomes stronger and bigger. But if you never want to feel any pain when you're lifting weights, for example, you'll never actually get stronger. Of course, when you are exercising, you can also damage your ligaments and tendons, and that is a problem, or even tear your muscles too much and do a strain or a tear, that's not good. And so we have to try to be aware of what is the pain of growth versus what is the pain of damage and actually embrace the pain of growth in the ways that we feel are good for us. And so he talks about in this book, Mark Manson, we choose the pain rather than trying to avoid it because pain is inevitable. We can't avoid pain, but we can choose the pain and find a pain that's worthwhile 
for us. Uh, earlier in the book, he also talks about how we try to give meaning to life, and that's to avoid what he calls the uncomfortable truth, which is the reality that really our lives don't have much meaning. In the end, uh, it's kind of a nihilist view almost that we just have, uh, we're going to all die, and really our lives are in some ways, in that way, insignificant, but we try to give it meaning, whether it's through religions, like actual religions of Christianity or Islam, or um, religions of ideology or through heroes, we somehow try to find a way away away from this uncomfortable truth. That is that life in a way is meaningless or it can be, um, but really none of those things have actual meaning, which is true. For example, he talks about sports and I do love sports, but really we make it such a big deal. But I, it's not lost on me that really it's just some people playing a game where it could have almost no meaning, but we make it sometimes the most significant part of our our lives or at least of our days or weeks. And I've definitely been that type of person many times before. Um, so pain is unavoidable. We should just recognize that we have to choose the right type of pain in our lives. And I think that's very important. And I think it's unfortunately he talks about how we're moving away from that in today's day and age where we think that it's all about enjoying life and feeling good. And so we've made a lot of progress in the world that people are... Um, suffering less from the types of avoidable suffering such as starving to death or not having adequate care we still have to make lots of progress even in that way but he talks about how although we've lost that we still um, are becoming unhappier in a lot of ways and so to me that word unhappy we have to think about how we're defining it many people are striving for the happiness of feeling good in the moment of avoiding pain and feeling pleasure, feeling even joy in the moment. But to me, when we look at a happy life, I think we should focus on fulfillment and a life of meaning. And that's where I did have a hard time. So I was understanding if his point was how to have a meaningful life, or if it's even important to have a meaningful life, or we should avoid having a meaningful life. But he did talk about how we want to be good now, rather than trying to be good because, for example, we get into heaven or good because it's going to lead to some result. Um, that's conditional. And so it's important to not have those conditions on what we do and rather just be good because it is good to be good. It is good to be honest. So we should just be honest, not because if you're honest, people will like you or you'll go to heaven or you'll make money or whatever is that reward. It shouldn't be conditional. We should live the right life just because it is the right thing to do, which I, I definitely agree with. And also um, he talks a bit about how the intention is always important in what you do, the why. So if you tell the truth because uh, you think it's the right thing to do, you value honesty, that's more important than if you tell the truth because you're afraid you'll get in trouble or people won't like you. They might both look the same in an action, but they are not the same when it comes to intention, which is really what matters. Um, also, he talks a bit about freedom and how we sometimes think freedom means having more choices, but actually sometimes freedom is more about self-limitation, that when we sometimes give ourselves the not, no choice in doing something, that can actually be better. A uh, type of like Ulysses contract. So you, let's say you want to go to the morning tomorrow. You say, please wake me up tomorrow. Basically, don't even give me a choice. Sometimes we actually get more freedom in doing that. Uh, the last chapter, he talks about um, artificial intelligence. And last week's book was How to Create a Mind by Ray Kurzweil, where he talks 
a lot about AI, artificial intelligence. I didn't expect it in this book, but he says that he thinks, uh, Mark Manson says it's going to be the last religion. And I'm not sure I agreed with that completely. I've talked about my own thoughts of how I think with what's happening with technology, it's going to free up a lot more of our time to actually connect to each other more and focus on relationships and connecting something that maybe the machines can do. I'm sure they're going to be able to do many things, but that's something that at least for now is a uniquely human thing. But I'm sure there can be robots that can have empathy or will be able to do that. So maybe that'll change as well. Um, but he says that we shouldn't be afraid of this, uh, this religion or this revolution where the robots or the computers will be smarter than us, but that we should actually embrace it and recognize that they'll find a better way to live uh, than we do right now, which I guess this, that's up for debate. But nonetheless, uh, the book was entertaining, to say the least, very enjoyable to get through. As I mentioned, at times a little disjointed, but I, I think he makes some interesting points, sprinkles some pretty intense philosophical uh, concepts throughout the book as well, and makes some good points about different things and at least makes you think about things in a slightly different way, which is refreshing as well. So that was Everything is Effed a book about hope by Mark Manson. And again, the book of this week is Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, a Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed by Lori Gottlieb. We've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. back a lot of kids are going back to school this week and last week so I um, wanted to talk a bit about parents and parenting related to schooling something that parents can wear, worry a lot about and there's a lot of anxiety about it. and also things like homework and grades tend to be a big source of contention in families especially with teenagers but really of all ages so I wanted to share some thoughts on that as we're entering into another school year um, to begin with, parents often think their main responsibility is to manage their children in general, but especially when it comes to grades, that they're supposed to constantly stay on top of the grades, push their kids, and get them to do schoolwork. So sometimes parents will say things like, the reason why I'm, I'm helping him so much with his work is that if I didn't help him, he wouldn't get it done. And we should see the goal rather than getting that one homework assignment done um, that shouldn't be the goal. Really, it's more about an overall way of being that's going to be more important. The relationship you have with your child and the relationship they have with their schoolwork. So what I tell parents is rather than trying to be a manager or thinking that your job is to get your child to have good grades, your job always as a parent is to have a good relationship with your child first. That's your first responsibility and the one that you have the most control over. You don't have control and we shouldn't try or, and can't control someone to do things, to get A's or to, to study. That just doesn't work. And what I see a lot of parents doing is because they can get so focused and obsessed with grades and the most recent grades and the next grade that's going to come, they can lose sight of the bigger picture that really you're not supposed to just get the work done and think, okay, that's the success. But we want to get a child who enjoys doing the work or will do the work themselves, who will be 
intrinsically motivated from within rather than externally or motivated extrinsically from outside things. Because if they are not motivated from within themselves, you're creating a uphill battle, one where you're going to have to try to drag your child forward rather than them taking the steps themselves to get ahead and to keep going. And not only that, you're not preparing them for what happens in the future after whatever the next grade is, or let's say even high school, eventually it's going to run out. If you're the one pushing them forward, they're going to have to do the work. So if you're working harder on their homework than they are, we have a problem. It's not going to work that way. They have to want to get the work done and they're going to have to do the work because if they don't, eventually it's going to run out. The pushes that you're giving them won't work. They won't be able to get them where they need to get to to be successful long term. And related to this, something that I also tell parents often is that we think that we have to really push our kids and put pressure on them, make them realize how important it is to study and get good grades. And and if we don't, they're not going to do very well. But what we don't recognize is usually the pressure we put as much as we think that it's helping them rather than pushing them forward and encouraging them. It's usually crushing them. It's not helping them putting more pressure on them, stressing them out is not going to get them to where they need to get to long-term. It might put some pressure on them to get the next assignment done or do well on the next test, but it's not a good long-term strategy. So usually we don't need to add pressure to the situation, even though we think we do, um, we are actually just going to make things worse. So usually pressure is going to crush rather than push forward uh, by making your kid want to try harder. And related to that, we also want to be careful not to compare. Uh, we inevitably compare ourselves anyway. If a kid goes to class and they say, this kid got an A and you got a C, they're going to feel that comparison. We implicitly see this. It's, we can try not to or think, don't compare yourself to anyone. But the reality is we're going to do that. But what you want to make sure you do is that you don't add to that by comparing your children to others. Uh, parents will constantly do this. Oh, I heard so-and-so got a 4.6 and they even say, oh, I'm not comparing. I just am bringing it to their attention. But your kids know what you're doing when you bring someone up or you do the opposite. So-and-so is doing really poorly, you know, because they don't study at all. We think this way we're going to teach them that they shouldn't avoid studying and that they should study and push themselves forward. So be aware of the comparisons that you might do in ways that you think are hidden. They're usually not so subtle and they're not so secret. And also related to this, and the reason why you might even be doing this, is take some of the pressure off of yourself. Um, you might think that your child has to get perfect grades this year or else they won't get into college or they won't do this or they won't do that. I've heard parents from almost every age group say that this year is so important for my kid's future. They have to do well this year. All the way back from elementary school to middle school to high school, that they put this pressure on them that they have to do well now. And that puts a lot of pressure on them, but also on you, or first it puts it on you to put it onto them. But almost always, whatever happens this next year is not going to determine someone's life. What's going to determine their life is all the stuff they do, the thousands and thousands of decisions they make throughout their life. Yes, there, there can be an impact on what happens this year. So I'm not saying nothing matters. Of course it does, but we can put way too much pressure on things, which unfortunately is already the way that things are going. Uh, the SATs and grades, and you have to be perfect in every area of your life, at least how it looks on paper, in order to get into a good university 
out of high school here in the United States. And I think actually this is having a, a lot of negative and detrimental effects on the youth, but also to our education system in general, where the focus is so much on these types of measuring sticks or using measuring sticks that aren't actually what are important, but focusing on just looking good on paper to get accepted to these schools. And I think that's actually a big problem. So keep in mind that you as the parent always have to be aware of the big picture while also being with your child in the moment. So your child gets, let's say, a bad grade on a test. It's not that you're going to say, it doesn't matter, I don't care. You're going to still possibly be successful in the future or this doesn't affect your success. You are with them and if they're upset or they're down, you recognize that pain. But you also can keep a bigger picture mindset that, you know what, even if they didn't do so well now, this is just one step. If they fall right now, that's actually okay. We can grow from failures and missteps we don't have to see them as something really negative we can try to learn from them and most kids unfortunately don't feel they have that space with their parents that comfort to say you know i got a d on the, my last test because they know that most parents think their reaction has to be to punish that and to make them feel bad most kids if they get a d or f are going to feel bad so they already feel it you don't need to add to that by punishing them you don't need to teach them that something they already know is bad is bad. They know that, but you want to help them learn from it. Okay, you got a D. Why do you think you got a D on this test? What's going on? Have a conversation with them. Let them express what they're going through. Because I see it so often when parents don't let their kids be comfortable. I've heard every excuse in the book. Oh, the teacher is unfair. Oh, this teacher doesn't teach anything. Oh, the test was unfair. No one did well. Oh, this test doesn't even matter. They can come up with any number of excuses and they come up with those excuses because they feel they have to have them for you to prove to you that I'm not bad or that I am okay or I'm lovable or I'm trying hard or I'm smart. I don't want you to think I'm stupid. So I'm going to show you how hard I tried. And so this is where it comes back to you as a parent aren't some kind of grade manager, but you are a relationship manager, meaning that you manage a relationship between you and your child. You want to allow for them to feel comfortable to tell you what's going on. And this has to do with school, but also in general with everything going on in their life. Uh, parents think that they have to force their kids or push their kids away from certain things and towards certain things. But there's only so much you can control even in yourself, um, let alone in someone else. So you don't want your son to have a girlfriend until he's 20. Well, good luck trying to control what he does on his free time. All that could happen is if he wants to have a girlfriend or boyfriend, he just won't tell you about it and you'll have to not know. It's not that you're stopping them. So I think a lot of times parents think they're more powerful than they are and they can just control what their kids do or don't do, but they're not. But the good news is you don't need to be. You're not supposed to get them to do things and get them not to do things. You can, of course, try to guide them in certain ways and having conversations about things, but ultimately you know that they're going to make the decision. And Unfortunately, what happens when we put this kind of pressure on our kids and make them feel that they can get judged for what they do and they don't do, they'll start to hide things. And often if they get themselves in some kind of trouble from big to small, they might feel they have to hide that from you and they won't share that with you. And now they'll be in even more trouble. So if you tell your child they are never supposed to smoke cigarettes and no one in this home would ever smoke cigarettes or vape or do any of those things and anyone that does won't be part of this family well now if they have an addiction to vaping what are they going to do they won't feel that they can come to you 
They won't feel that they have you as an ally and as a support, and they'll maybe turn to worse things or turn to other people to try to get help or get out of that situation. We always want to keep that bridge of connection open for our kids so that they know that they can come to us with whatever is going on. And I don't mean to say if they're doing something unhealthy or bad, you have to pretend like it's good or say you like it. So you can acknowledge that you're concerned, you're worried, or you don't even like what's happening. But there's a difference between not liking something and judging someone for that thing. There's a difference between saying, I don't like this action, I'm concerned it could hurt you, rather than saying you're a bad person or people that do this or this or that. Leaving them that space to come back to you is so important. But lots of people, and especially um, sometimes immigrant families and Persian families, they think that if we make something acceptable or okay, that means that they're going to go ahead and do it. So if we talk to our kids about sex, then they're going to go have sex at a young age. If we talk to them about drugs and alcohol, they're going to start using at a young age. And so um, actually me and my brother Parham went to um, see stand-up comedy this past weekend. And Maz Jabrani was one of the comedians and he did a great job as usual. And he actually talks about how in Persian families or in immigrant families, but he was talking about also his own, we don't have the talk where people talk about masturbation or sex or different things. We just avoid all of those conversations, completely thinking that's better. And this is really how taboos work. We think that if we don't talk about something, somehow it doesn't exist or it disappears. But all that happens is that people suffer in silence or people suffer and struggle without any help or without any support, or even they think there's something wrong with them because they have whatever the issue is because it's a taboo. We don't talk about um, whatever topic it is. So if that's happened to you or you do that, you are somehow really, really bad. When it turns out we all have that, just like mental health issues. Everyone has some kind of a mental health issue. Many people struggle with depression and anxiety. It's very common, but because we think we have to hide it, then we think something's wrong with us when we have this thing that is part of being human, that isn't something really wrong or bad with us, but is something that most people will go through in some way at some point in their life. So you as a parent want to make sure you don't approach things in this way, that in this family, we don't this. And sometimes you don't even say it, it's just unsaid. And so the message is we don't have this issue or that issue, or we don't talk about this in this family. I always tell parents, you want to make every conversation topic okay. Every road of conversation is open when it comes towards you. You won't necessarily initiate it if you feel like they're not comfortable, they don't want to talk to you about it, but you're always there to allow them to talk to you about anything. And so one way you can do that is by sometimes bringing up different topics, whatever topic they do bring up, you talk to them about it. You don't tell them to stop talking or that we don't want to talk about it. You take it seriously. You show them that it is okay. But coming back to the uh, theme of school and grades, be aware of how you start the school year because you can start fresh, which is nice. But also that means that the things you start to set in motion start to become the habits and the routines of this year. If your kids feel like you're going to be the one that's on top of their homework and their grades and you're going to put pressure on them and make them feel a certain way and do certain things, that's what they're going to get used to. And don't get so consumed by the grades of today and right now. Of course, you're going to care, but don't force those things to make you do certain things that aren't going to be good long term. 
Don't think that, well, as long as I get my kids' homework done today, it doesn't matter what else happens. Because this is why we turn to things like even threats or getting angry, because we think the only thing that matters is getting that math assignment done today. And as long as I can get my kids to finish their homework, I was a good mom or a good dad today. But we have to think of the bigger picture. What are the values we're instilling in our kids? How are we helping them build their internal motivation, their own desire for learning, for working hard, for uh, being successful in ways that make sense for them by being the best version of themselves in ways that feel good. Realizing that school isn't something they have to be afraid of or to hate, that it could be difficult. Sometimes we recognize that it is struggle. We don't expect every moment to be good, but there can be good they can find in it. And if they have their goals and they know what they are, that can serve as part of their motivation for why they want to keep learning. So they learn because it's good in the moment, but also they have some goals to have. So remember that your job isn't to be a grades or school manager. You're supposed to be a parent, a mother or a father first, and you might help them when it comes to school, but don't make that your only purpose is to make sure they get good grades because that's not what your role is and that's not even what's going to make your kids happy or even successful. All right, going into our last commercial break, studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I talked in the previous segment about parents and back to school and how they can approach their children when it comes to grades and school and trying not to put too much pressure or thinking that their job as parents is to put pressure and to be grade and homework managers, but really focus more on their relationship with their kids. And I also wanted to end the show on a parenting slant, talking about how to emotionally respond to children, but it's not just in children. Uh, it also can be adult to adult, really. But um, the mindset or some aspect of the mindset that I think can be important in how we approach our emotional responses to people in general. So um, in psychological literature, you'll see uh, Winnicott talked about a holding uh, environment and I think it's, I think it's Bion or Bion, B-I-O-N, maybe Bion makes it sound very Persian, but um, talking about uh, a container and containing environment. And so I wanted to share some of my own thoughts. I've talked before about this, but an analogy came to my mind recently about what we do when we try to uh, calm someone down or when we're trying to help someone feel better uh, when they're not feeling good. So if we use an example of a kid who falls and is hurt and they're crying and parents might wonder how should I respond to help my child and there's a few things we can try to do what some parents try to do is to minimize the pain so say oh it's not that bad you're okay don't be sad this approach tends not to work it's very invalidating one people don't feel good when they're told that they are, they shouldn't be sad or they shouldn't be hurt or they shouldn't be upset. And this is not just true of children. It's also true of adults, any age. We don't like to be told you shouldn't feel what you're feeling. So we don't want to invalidate or minimize their pain. Um, another classic example that is along the same vein is to distract. So the kid is crying because they fell, give them something they like, uh, a toy, ice cream, candy, or just distract their attention somehow, make them not know they are hurting and try to distract their pain. And this is not a good approach either because distracting from pain is just going to teach them that when you're hurt, try to distract yourself or numb the pain or 
get something, whether it's a substance or a behavior that just takes away the feeling. So that's where drugs and alcohol and food can come into play. So we don't want to teach them this either. And so if we begin with what our mindset is, if we look at those first two strategies, the goal is, or the really principal approach is to end the sadness end the crying. And that's what a lot of parents think their job is to stop the tears. If I stop the tears, I won. What makes the kids stop crying? That's all that matters. Now, when you have a baby, that is primarily what you're doing because the baby is just telling you some kind of bodily need they have. I need to be fed. I need to be changed. I need to be held. Something is going on. And it's usually that physical response that they need. But as children get older, especially, we don't want to just think of ending the tears as the only goal. When your child is five years old and they fall down, ending the tears is not the only thing we want to focus on. And so, yes, we do want to help soothe the child. So I'm not saying that uh, we don't care that they're sad. Absolutely we do. But it's how we respond to them that can be very important. So the first step is we want to show empathy, that we recognize that the child is in pain, that it's understandable that they're hurt and that they're crying. Another thing, unfortunately, here a lot is that you don't cry, you shouldn't cry, or especially boys don't cry. I, 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 you still hear things like that, that a boy shouldn't cry. Again, with the principal mindset that and goal that if I get you to stop crying, I've won or it's good. And if you're crying, that's bad. So hopefully we don't hold on to that value for ourselves, but especially not for our children. Um, so I am showing first empathy to the child. I am I can understand you're that hurt and you can feel it with them a little bit. And this is where empathy, part of empathy is you connect. Because if I say, if you're crying hysterically and I say, I can see that you're sad with a very flat tone, you won't feel that I'm really getting it. So part of empathy shows that we're mirroring what's going on. I'm showing you pain. Oh, that, that hurt. I'm feeling some of that pain. Now, unfortunately, some people go to the other extreme and because they can't handle the pain or because they have their own um, issues of emotional expression, they can react too strongly. So the kid cries because they fell and the mom or the dad almost cries harder than the baby or reacts with more panic. Oh my gosh, my kid. And they freak out. And this is obviously not going to help the child either because when the child is in that state, and I was using those terms of containment or holding to start off the segment, what they need is to ha be held emotionally or help have their feelings contained. But if you yourself are so all over the place emotionally and are expressing so much, that doesn't give the child that feeling of calm that they need. That won't help soothe them. If anything, it stirs them up. And what a lot of kids learn to do, whether it's in that moment or in future interactions, is to hide their feelings or to put them away. So if you start to cry, the child might stop crying because they're worried about you now or they're overwhelmed by what's going on. So the analogy that works for me or another way of thinking about this is when your child falls, uh, I don't like, I don't want you to think of these terms as emotionally hot and cold, but it's like they've gotten cold and they're, they're almost frozen. And what you want to do is help to warm them up again, get them back to a good state. And Similar to how if someone, let's say, got frostbite, you can't just put their hand near a fire or 
warm it up too fast, that can actually lead to damage. That's not good. You have to warm it up slowly. I think usually you put it in some warm water first or like tepid water and then slightly warmer water, and then you can get to hot water, but you can't go straight to very hot water. That won't be good. So with our child, we don't want to just quickly take away their tears and make them happy. That's not really how it's going to work, but we want to serve as warm water to help them, um, reach an equilibrium or stabilize again. So we're that holding environment. They're cold and we show them we care, but we also give them some warmth. We're not going to drag them away from the pain, but we're going to allow them to get to where we are ourselves back to that calm state. And that's why we as the parent have to be able to maintain some level of composure. If we're showing we don't care at all and that we don't think the child should be sad, that's not good. But the other extreme of feeling too much is not going to be good either. So this is why if a friend comes to you and is crying, if you say they shouldn't cry at all, that's not good. But if you, on the other hand, are crying more than them, usually what happens is they're going to try to take care of you and that won't allow for you to contain them. Now, of course, sometimes you're in an interaction where it's something emotional for both of you and you maybe will both cry and it can actually be very beautiful and nice. So I'm not saying that should never happen, but we have to be aware that if we're trying to be there for someone, whether it's a kid, a partner, friend, relative, if we are not able to have some level of containment of our own feelings, we really can't be there for that person. And this is why as a person in general, but especially as a parent, it's so important that we are aware of our own overall mental health and emotional stability. Because if you are too uh, anxious or depressed or you really can't contain your own feelings, it's going to make it difficult or almost impossible for you to really be there for someone else emotionally or to be there for your child emotionally. So you have to have that awareness. So we're serving as that warm water. It doesn't mean it's going to quickly change things. We're going to be patient as you see your child get more comfortable, get more okay. You'll stay with them, but you're not going to try to rush them through and say, okay, you're cold, but you have to be warm now. No, you're going to let them slowly warm up or in what we're looking at, slowly calm down and feel okay. And you also have that confidence that if they stay with you and when you stay with them and that the feeling is going to pass, that they will warm up. So you, that gives you that comfort to give them that calm feeling that, okay, we're going to stay together. I'm going to be here with you until you feel okay. There isn't a rush for you to be okay. There isn't anything so bad about how you are now. I can handle it. I feel okay too. And because of this comfort I'm giving you and even the, the soothingness of the voice you can give to your child, you're showing them, I feel and I know you're going to be okay. And that gives them the comfort of through your confidence and your belief that they will be okay. And I'm using the example of your uh, an interaction between a parent and a child, but I've made some comments on other relationships as well. But this can even be, in a, for example, a romantic relationship. Your partner is upset about something or hurt by something that you've said. It can be very hard, of course, because here it's more personal, but to not take it personally that even if they are hurt by you or they don't feel good about something you said, if we can maintain our own composure and not get so consumed in taking it personally, we can still be that person that helps them get to that place. So your partner's jealous about something. And of course, a reaction of that could be to feel like you're being questioned or that they are threatening your, um, way of being or who you are or what you're doing, which it can make sense. But if you can hold on to that, but also recognize that even though 
they're jealous or let's say not okay about something you did, you know that things are okay. You know that actually they don't have anything to worry about, but you're going to have empathy and understand how they feel, but you're going to stay as that warm water and help them get to a good equilibrium with you. That because you know there's nothing for them to worry about, you can help them get to where you are. You can help them um, get on the same page with you, which is that everything is okay. But again, you can't rush them away from that. You can't force them away to feel okay. You have to be there with them. And so this is a lot of what emotional connection is about, is being with others with their feelings, not trying to force or change them, but to allow them to go through their experience. That if you're sad, okay, I'm going to be with you while you're sad. And even my, my goal isn't that I'm going to make you happy immediately, but I'm going to be here with you. In the example of your child falling, you know that this, that is a temporary pain that they likely will be okay in, let's say, a few minutes. But sometimes people will be sad and you can be a container for them to be there with their feelings, but you're not just trying to make them change how they feel. Emotional connection, emotionally being there for others can help them feel better, but you have to start with the mindset that I'm not going to put pressure on you to feel better. And this can seem almost paradoxical that if I want you to feel better, that if I'm trying to be there with you, why don't I care about how you're doing? But you do care, but you are not putting that pressure on them to feel okay. Unfortunately, this is why we often get fatigue when we're trying to be there for one another. A lot of times when people are grieving a lo uh, the loss of a close friend or partner, they'll say that at the beginning people would come around, but then they stopped. And a lot of times people say, because I kept going over or I kept being with them, but they kept being depressed. And that can take a toll on us too. So we have to make sure we're okay, as I was saying before, but we have to make sure we take away that goal that I have to make them feel better or make them feel good now. Because when we do that, it doesn't allow for us to be there for someone to let them go through their process. Grieving the loss of a loved one might take a long time. So we shouldn't have that expectation or that put that pressure on them that you should be okay now. That if I'm helping you, if I'm here, you should be okay. Because a lot of life, a lot of life is not about that. Sometimes when we go through a lot of pain, the pain doesn't go away, but it might feel bearable if someone is around doesn't mean we're going to be happy and back to our old self, but it could mean that we will feel slightly better. And so we shouldn't look at our goal as you have to feel good now, you have to be back to normal, or you have to quote unquote be over it, but that I'm just going to be here for you. And that's it. I don't know exactly the result, but I will try to be here for you the best I can. And coming back to our children, recognizing that our job is not as a parent to make them happy all the time, or if they feel bad, our goal should be what's the fastest way I can stop them from crying. The least number of tears means I'm the best mom or dad. That really is not what it's about. As I was talking about in the book by Mark Manson, pain is an inevitable part of life. They're going to face that. And we actually want to show them that that's okay, that they don't need to avoid it, that pain will come, but it will also go, that we will be there. And even if they're sad or angry or upset or hurt, that doesn't make them any less lovable or any harder for us to be around them, that we will be there for them as long as they need us and that it's okay to hurt and hurt comes and goes just like other feelings and that's okay. And that's the best way we can really be there for our kids to be that container, to be that warm water when they're cold. That warm water doesn't quickly make them okay, but slowly can help them feel better and feel okay and feel back to some kind of normal or some calm or equilibrium. All right, that brings us to the end of 
tonight's show. The book of the week again is Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, a Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed by Lori Gottlieb. Thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delakwi. Have a wonderful night. Thank you.